This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. I'm going to begin a new series uh, for my chapel uh, this semester. Uh, We wrapped up that series on the qualifications for the pastor from 1 Timothy 3 last semester. And I thought I would uh, bring a a shorter series uh, starting with this semester in this chapel this morning. Does everyone have a handout? Does anybody not have a handout? All right, good. Um, It's good to see David Watson back with us. I understand you're recovering from a rather serious injury. Well, uh, downhill mountain biking accident. We admire your courage. <laughs> we may question your judgment. <laughs> um, Professor Edwards, um, I understand there is a pre-council, a pre-conference activity on the Wednesday before the E3. Yes. Is that in the afternoon or the morning? It's in the it's the afternoon through the morning. So the pre-conference is uh, going to be focusing on crafting an expositional sermon. Wednesday afternoon. Wednesday morning through the afternoon. So our students wouldn't have opportunity Unless they don't have class. if they have classes on Wednesday morning, but they could take advantage of that yeah. in the afternoon. Yeah. And that sounds like a, a, a excellent topic, a real payday for pastors crafting the sermon. So I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. Um, several of our speakers this uh, semester have uh, challenged us about the challenges of seminary life, uh, the difficulties of our studies, and the need to persevere uh, regardless of uh, the circumstances of our lives. And uh, uh, several of them mentioned uh, persevering to the end and anticipation of the Lord's return and all that will transpire at that time. And I want to focus on that theme, uh, the Lord's return, but look at a specific topic in connection with the Lord's return, and that's the judgment seat of Christ. And the title there is intentionally chosen, the judgment seat of Christ, a key incentive for faithful service, a key incentive for faithful service. And as you look at that title, there may be a bit of a disconnect. It's the judgment seat of Christ, a faithful incentive for faithful service. But as we go through it, I think you'll understand why the blessed hope and specifically the judgment seat of Christ is so often uh, identified in Scripture as an incentive for us to be faithful in this life, anticipating our giving account of our service for our Savior at the rapture of the church. So let's begin then with the introduction. By the way, this is an open forum, meaning you're free to ask questions at any time. It's not a traditional a sermon in that sense. So I say here on two occasions, the expression the judgment seat of Christ or God is used to describe Christians standing before Christ, following the rapture of the church, and having their lives judged by Christ. I list the two passages there. We'll get back to those. Several questions are raised with th- these and related verses which describe the judgment of believers as members of Christ's body, the church. What is involved with this judgment, and how does it harmonize with other texts 
which teach that believers will never face God's condemnation and judgment. So we want to examine the judgment seat of Christ and then harmonize that with what we find elsewhere in Scripture, uh, Romans 8, 1 and elsewhere, that you and I as believers will never face eternal condemnation and judgment. So how does the judgment seat of Christ uh, harmonize with that truth that you and I will never face God's judgment, a punishment and condemnation? So let's begin with a definition. The name judgment seat comes from the Greek word which refers to a seat on a raised step or platform located in a public area within a city. The civil magistrates would sit on such a seat when performing their judicial duties. So whenever a civil magistrate would exercise their authority as a judge, they would sit on this judgment seat. Most of the New Testament references to the seat occur where an individual is brought before a ruling authority to be judged for some charge. Pilate, for example, sat on this seat when he tried Jesus. He was sitting on the, 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 the seat that was dedicated uh, for him to exercise that authority of judgment. Uh, there are two, two views are popular on what precisely will take place at this judgment. Some view the judgment seat of Christ as a place of intense sorrow and shame, a place of terror. The believer's sins are publicly revealed and the believer is punished for those sins not confessed or properly dealt with in this life. Others take the opposite position, viewing this as a place of no remorse or shame, but only of rejoicing. Christ strictly dispenses rewards and every believer receives at least some recognition for service. Well, as I'm looking at you and you're looking at me, if these are the only two options, I know which one I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose the second option if these are the only two options. Let's find out from uh, the text what the options are, or what the uh, judgment seat involves, I should say. Key text. Three passages in the New Testament directly discuss the judgment seat of Christ. We'll begin with Romans 14. I give context here where Paul addresses matters of conscience and the problem that arose between what is referred to as weak and strong believers, Romans 14. I'm reading then. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And then 1 Corinthians 3, again context, where Paul describes his ministry at Corinth and the ministry of those who followed him. Again, reading the text. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, and I think Paul makes a transition here, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. 
and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If a man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And again, the context there is Paul is, is describing his ministry and the ministry of those who followed him at Corinth. And then the third and final passage, the 2 Corinthians 5, again, context, Paul is discussing his motivation for service. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, please notice now, whether good or bad. Key points. Who is judged? According to the above passages, this judgment is specifically for Christians, that is, for believers as members of the body of Christ. Writing to the church at Corinth, Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The expression all in this context refers to Paul and his readers representing Christians, that is, believers as members of Christ's body, the church. Other judgments are mentioned in God's Word, but Christians are not involved in these. Two such examples are Matthew 25, which speaks of Christ judging the nations at the end of the tribulation. You might recall that's the judgment of the sheep and goat, or goats within the nations that have survived the tribulation judgments, and Christ judges them. Uh, and Revelation 20, which speaks of the judgment of all unbelievers at the end of the millennial kingdom at the great white throne of God. So I just mentioned that there are several judgments mentioned. We're not involved in the, uh, these other judgments. Our judgment will take place at the judgment seat of Christ following the rapture. When does this judgment take place? The judgment takes place in connection with the Lord's return. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul links this judgment with the coming of the day. The expression the day is an abbreviation of the longer expression, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, found in Paul and others to describe events surrounding the second coming of Christ. Specifically, the judgment seat of Christ as part of this day follows the rapture of the church. It takes place while believers are in heaven with Christ. I think that's what our Lord discusses in John 14, 1 through 3, about preparing a place for us. It takes place while believers are in heaven with Christ and before Christ returns to the earth at the end of the seven-year period, tribulation period, to establish his kingdom. This then is distinct from the judgment of Old Testament believers, which according to Daniel 12 takes place with their resurrection at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The judgment seat of Christ is also distinct from the judgment of the tribulation believers, which according to Revelation 11 also takes place at the end of the tribulation. Who is judged? Or excuse me, what is judged? This judgment involves an evaluation of the believer's works. 
In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul states that it is our works that are to be examined or judged, and specifically our works performed as followers and servants of Christ. Furthermore, according to the same passage, these works are judged by Christ to determine whether they are good or evil. That is, whether they are those that Christ can approve. I understand gold, silver, precious stones are identifying that category and or not approve. I understand wood, hay, and straw referring to those that he cannot approve. True 1 Corinthians 3 specifically describes the evaluation of vocational ministers. However, the language Paul uses is intentionally broad. Furthermore, Paul picks up the same theme in 2 Corinthians 5 and applies this evaluation to all his readers as members of the body of Christ. Now, let's define it's, it's, it's the believer's works that are being judged. Those that are good, Paul says, are those that are bad, 2 Corinthians 5. And so what we want to do here, just momentarily, is establish what is a good work. How do we define a good work in that that's the kind of work we want to pursue and have God approve at the judgment seat of Christ? So I just briefly unpack what a good work is. It may be assumed as anything a believer does in obedience to God's word and necessarily motivated by faith and love toward God. So obedience to God's word and motivated by faith and love toward God. That's a good work. This definition is the one James gives in 2.21 when describing Abraham's offering of Isaac, a classic, a classic example of a good work. So let's, let's tease that out just a bit. Um, we're, we're familiar with Genesis 22, and Abraham taking Isaac to a location that the Lord specified, uh, building an altar there, tying Isaac uh, up and placing him on the altar and attempting to sacrifice Isaac on that altar. And of course, the Lord's intervening and halting that sacrifice in providing uh, a substitute, if you please. So uh, the questions, uh, I want to ask and answer three questions. Um, they're rhetorical questions, so I'm not asking you to answer. I'll answer them, but I want to put them in the form of a question. Uh, the first question is, why would, why would Abraham... <laughs> Uh, attempt to sacrifice Isaac. Why, why would Abraham do that? That, that is something that we, we don't see God commending elsewhere in Scripture, the sacrificing of one's own child. And the obvious answer to that question is because God commanded him to do that. God commanded Abraham to do that, and so Abraham, in obedience to God's word, attempted to sacrifice Isaac. So the first part of the definition there is a believer, what a believer does in obedience to God's word. But I also mentioned faith and love. Um, the, the question then is, why would Abraham, why would Abraham uh, sacrifice Isaac, somebody that represented uh, a, a child that he dearly loved? Uh, I, we can only imagine after waiting that long a time for a child, God gives him a child, uh, all of us who are fathers know how great a love a father has for his son or daughter. Uh, so the question is raised, why on earth would I, uh, Abraham attempt to offer Isaac somebody he dearly loves? And the only answer to that question is, he loves God more. And that's brought out in Genesis 22. He loved God more. He loved Isaac, but he loved God more. And I think that's 
why I've included in my definition not only something that you and I as believers do in obedience to God's Word, but it must be motivated by our love toward God. And then the last part of that definition is faith. You know, if we think about it, Isaac represented all of God's promises that he gave to Abraham. All of God's promises that God gave to Abraham were going to be fulfilled through Isaac, through Isaac's offspring, if you please. And so we ask the question, why would Abraham offer Isaac, the son of promise, putting in jeopardy all of God's promises to Abraham? Why would he do that? And of course, the, the author of Hebrews answers that question for us. Uh, he, he was motivated by faith. He, he was fully convinced that were he to sacrifice Isaac, God would raise him from the dead because God had promised him that through Isaac, all these things that I have uh, covenanted to give to you, it's through Isaac and through his descendants that they will be fulfilled. So that's why I've come up with a definition. It's anything you and I do in obedience to God's word, motivated by faith and love toward God. We are to love God supremely, aren't we? The greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and spirit. And Paul and others inform us that anything we do that's not by faith or in response to faith is sin. So that's why I think these, the definition is, is kosher. I think it's a good definition, and it's built on the example of uh, James, James uses of a good work in uh, James chapter 2, verse 21. Let me park it here and see if you may have questions about that or anything that has preceded. Any questions thus far? Silence construes consent. Sir Thomas More. All right. All right, let's go on then. Uh, what does Christ, why does Christ judge Christians? The purpose of this judgment is to issue rewards for service. Again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, if anyone's work remains, he will receive a reward. As such, the judgment seat of Christ does not directly address the believer's sin, though it is understood that our sinning is the reason why a specific work will be counted worthless. Neither does this judgment place in jeopardy the salvation of the believer. In the very next verse, Paul states that if, believers, if the believer's works are shown to be worthless, he himself will be saved, quote, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. It is his works, Paul indicates, that are burned up, and the loss that he suffers, therefore, must refer to the loss of reward that would otherwise have been his or hers. He is said to be saved, yet so as through fire, and I understand that expression to mean that his final salvation is accomplished by the loss of reward. So as through fire means the loss of reward. In the, in the above passage, and I think there's a bit of a tension with that 1 Corinthians 3 passage. Um, how is it that a true believer can suffer the loss of all reward? Meaning what? That there are no works that he has accomplished that our Lord can view as good, as a good work. And, and it, well, how can that describe a true believer? Uh, void of good works. So let's, I, I try to answer that question. In the above passage, Paul overstates his point to emphasize the security of the believer. 
From the larger context, it is assumed that there will be some spiritual fruit in the life of even this individual if he is truly saved. And I'm basing that in part in James and also some of the parables of our Lord. James describes someone who says he has faith but has no works. He describes that individual. Can that faith save him? And the construction of of James's question is no. An individual who claims to have faith and has no good works to give evidence of the genuineness of that faith, that faith cannot save. So I'm assuming that every true believer must produce some level of good works. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians uh, 3 there, is uh, speaking somewhat hypothetically and even impossibly or impossible. He's describing a believer who suffers the loss of all reward, and and he states it that way to identify the security of the believer. Whatever judgment you and I face, that doesn't put in jeopardy our salvation. I think that's Paul's point there, the way he describes the circumstances. Pause it here. Questions about that? Go ahead, Caleb. Uh, There are, and we're going to get to that, if not this morning, next time. Good question. Anyone else? All right, six. At the same time, good works are the evidence of salvation, not a condition for salvation. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in God's promised Redeemer alone, apart from any and all works. Thus, good works are the fruit of faith. They are not the root of faith. Necessary for the judgment seat to give evidence that our faith is genuine, but it's the works that are judged. Answers to question. What about unconfessed sins in this life? It cannot be stressed too strongly that the believer's sins, past, present, and future, have once for all been forgiven at the moment of salvation, and the believer will never face eternal condemnation and punishment for those sins. However, unconfessed sin does affect the believer, but it is the believer's relationship with God in this life that is affected. Such unconfessed sin hinders the believer's effectiveness as the Lord's servant and brings divine chastisement that impacts the believer's joy. To restore unhindered relationship with God, believers must regularly and sincerely confess their sins to God. Included in this confession is the acknowledging of guilt, the exercising of repentance, and the seeking of divine forgiveness. I'm basing that not on the 1 John 9 passage, chapter 1, verse 9, but on the Proverbs 28. God has promised to cleanse and forgive the believer who sincerely confesses sin, thereby removing any obstacles to effective service and blessing. Such sins committed by a believer should never be taken lightly. They are those for which Christ died. And if unconfessed, they subject the believer to divine chastisement in this life. At the same time, the believer will never face eternal condemnation and punishment. For a parallel, see John 13 and Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Um, Let's just unpack that for a moment. You recall on the night of the Last Supper, our Lord 
took uh, a basin of water, a pitcher of water, and a towel, and began to wash the disciples' feet. And he comes to Peter, as you recall, and Peter says, Lord, you shouldn't be doing that for me. I should be doing that for you. He's the Lord. Peter was his servant. And it's a servant who washes the feet, and he washes the feet of the Lord. And our Lord says to Peter, Peter, unless I do this for you, you have no part in, in me or with me. In other words, there's something necessary the Lord does for Peter and the other uh, believers. So then Peter says, well, if that's the case, you know, I, I want to have all of me washed, not just my feet. And our Lord responds by saying, Peter, you have already been cleansed. You have already been washed. You have already been justified, if you please. But as you live in this life on this earth, you still commit sins, and I'm cleansing you from those sins because those sins do affect your effectiveness or service, and it also affects your joy in the Lord and uh, brings divine chastisement. So I think that's a, an appropriate uh, illustration there. Peter had already experienced the forgiveness involved in justification. This is a forgiveness that operates on a different level, and it involves the believers serving Christ in this life and the consequences of sin in this life. Um, I have another illustration, um, and I don't know how telling this one is, but I'm going to go through it anyway. Uh, at that point, uh, I'm sorry, an, an illustration of this is when someone's son or daughter sins. Uh, I have two sons, and when they were growing up, if they sinned, uh, they didn't stop being my son, did they? At that point, they became my disobedient son. They were still my son, but they were a disobedient son, and I had to respond to their disobedience. So I say here, um, someone's son or daughter sins, at that point the son or daughter becomes the parent's disobedient child, yet that son or daughter still remains the parent's child. So it's not jeopardizing our relationship to the Lord in terms of our father and we are his sons and daughters. It does affect our, it does have an effect on our effectiveness in our service and it does open us to divine chastisement, which then affects the joy we have in our salvation. Um, so let me pause it here. Questions about what about unconfessed sins in this life? Um, you notice I define it there in Arabic 3 to restore unhindered relationship. Or in verse 2, or in Arabic 2 there, unconfessed sin affects the believer, but it's the believer's relationship to God in this life. Some would define it. It affects our fellowship with God. I have, I'm reluctant to use that term because John uses it in 1 John of eternal life. And so I don't want to say, well, it affects our fellowship with God, meaning it affects our eternal life. It doesn't do that. So that's why I use the word relationship rather than fellowship because of how, God, uh, how John uses fellowship in 1 John chapter 1. Any questions? Okay. Right. Good point. Very good point. Thank you, Dr. Snowbird. Any other thoughts, comments? All right, we've got a few more minutes. Let's continue. <clears throat> Are there levels of blessing in heaven? 
A number of passages support the conclusion that there are levels of punishment in hell. For example, Matthew 11 <coughs> and the Lord's condemnation of Capernaum and the surrounding cities for not believing in Jesus, despite his miracles. So our, our Lord mentions there and in similar contexts that it will be more tolerant for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those in his, uh, in his context who have witnessed his miracles and have, re have rejected him as the Messiah. And so that informs me that our Lord isn't saying, well, those in Sodom and Gomorrah are going to escape judgment. Clearly, God is going to judge them. But I think the point the Lord is making is that those who witness the person of our Messiah, our Christ, our Lord, and observed his miracles had greater revelation than those in Sodom and Gomorrah had, and therefore face a higher level of accountability and condemnation. I think that's the point he's making. And therefore, I'm convinced on that passage and others that there are levels of punishment in the lake of fire. All involve punishment, but I think there are levels of punishment. I'm convinced there are in the lake of fire. Arabic 3, then, or 2. The same is true for levels of blessing in the millennial kingdom. And again, here you have the parable of the talents. You know, ten talents, five talents, one talent, and the result of all of that. Now, what does it mean by levels of blessing? What am I talking about here when I say levels of blessing? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Here's my answer. What is meant by levels of blessing is that believers are given various levels of responsibility in the kingdom. Now, that's my understanding. The correspondence is whatever levels of blessing, levels of rewards that we receive at the Bema Seat of Christ, what those represent are levels of responsibility that you and I are given in the kingdom of our Savior. That's my understanding of what it means by rewards or what it means by blessings at the Bema Seat of Christ, at the Judgment Seat of Christ. It's identifying uh, what kind of responsibilities we will have in the kingdom age. Three, the very, <coughs> <pardon me. coughs> the very fact that rewards are distributed at the judgment seat of Christ and there are those who suffer the loss of such seems to demand varying levels of rewards or blessings for believers at the judgment seat and in the kingdom that follows. Assuming the millennial kingdom foreshadows what takes place in the new heavens and earth of the eternal state, the implication is that there are also levels of blessing or responsibilities in the eternal state. So I, I see the kingdom of Christ as having two phases. I see the uh, millennial kingdom as the first phase taking place on this earth, and then I see the <clears throat> transition to the eternal state as the second phase. I see it as one kingdom, but having two phases. And my argument then would be, if there are levels of blessing, i.e. levels of responsibility that you and I will enjoy and exercise in the millennial kingdom, then that would transfer to levels of responsibility and blessing in the eternal state as well. Uh, I'll pause it there. And does that answer your question, Caleb? Was that your question? It was. All right. Uh, did you have a follow-up? Okay. 
that is a tension, isn't it? Um, in, in what sense are we re rewarded for serving Christ? I mean, um, is that all simply uh, metaphoric language for we're, we're all going to be commended uh, in, in the presence of our Lord at the judgment seat, or does it involve other things besides simply his commendation? And th they want to see it as, well, it's not suggesting any levels of rewards or levels of whatever blessing. Uh, I, they, I assume they're just wanting to see it, uh, this, these passages in Scripture that talk about crowns or rewards or whatever, as simply metaphors for everyone gets a commendation, everyone experiences final salvation, everyone in, uh, enjoys eternal life. Uh, I think the texts argue against that. And I, I think the texts are on our side, if you please, and I've tried to unpack some of those already. Good question. Anyone else? Uh, we're sort of at the end of our chapel period, and it may take me a little longer to go through what's remaining, so uh, I think I'm going to pull the plug and uh, let us out and this will give me an opportunity to go through this uh, the next time I speak in chapel. So unless there's questions, we're going to close in a word of prayer. All right, again, the title of the Judgment Seat of Christ, A Key Incentive for Faithful Service. A Key Incentive for Faithful Service. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we humbly bow before you this morning and acknowledge our unworthiness of any of your gifts. We have not merited the least of your favor, Father, or the grace that you pour out upon us day in and day out. Um, you have not withhold, withheld any good gift from us, Father, and you continue to supply every good and perfect gift uh, day in and day out. We're so grateful, Father, that you have saved us and have given us eternal life. Our sins are forgiven, and we have this great joy of serving our Savior. We, we, are, we marvel, Father, that you hold out the prospect of reward for our service when our desire is to see our Savior glorified in all that we do. I pray that we would have a proper understanding of what will take place at the judgment seat of Christ and all that will uh, res result from that and that uh, it will be an incentive, Father, for us to serve Him faithfully who loved us and gave Himself for us. We desperately want to be faithful servants, our Father, so we pray that you would remind us of these passages regularly, that we might not grow weary of well-doing, but that we might persevere to the end and uh, do it in such a way, Father, that we are, by your grace, found faithful and fruitful, and that your name would be praised and hallowed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Inner City Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.